Awesome. Uh, well, it is the beginning of the new year, and uh, we're going to start in on a new series today, a series called Freedom from Religion, and we'll be working on this for, for a number of, of weeks. And this is a very, very important topic uh, because uh, if you read through the Gospels, you see that one of the major themes of the Gospels is that Jesus was setting people free from religion, that he was if you will, as our sermon title is, that he was poking the bear of the religious system, uh, that he was highlighting the, the dangers of religion gone bad. And so you see this conflict that Jesus constantly has with the Pharisees. And, and Jesus did not try to, you know, peacefully work around the religious system of the day, but he purposely went around poking the bear, making the religious leaders mad, in a sense, to, to give us a billboard of what happens when religion goes bad. And so, to be free from religion, and I'm talking about negative religion, is, is one of the major themes of Jesus' ministry, and so we cannot miss it in our own lives. Because very subtly, we can slide from freedom into religion, and that'll only end up hurting ourselves and hurting those around us. Um, Again, Jesus did not come to, to fix the religious system. He came to actually get rid of it. And we see that clearly in, in the New Testament, that he wasn't interested in just fixing what was going on. He came to remove religion and bring in freedom and life and relationship. And right away in the Gospels, you begin to see this, this, this theme that most religious leaders hate Jesus and most religious outcasts love Jesus that very quickly you just begin to read the Gospels, you see that Jesus is hanging around tax collectors and sinners, these outcasts that the religious system rejected. Those are the people Jesus hung around with, and those are the people that love Jesus. The leaders of the religious system, in fact, on the other hand, they hated Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus. And here's just a couple of verses relating to those two points. And so in Mark 2, at the very beginning of Mark's Gospel, it says that Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? That's how the religious system saw the outcasts of the day as scum. And Jesus comes around and does the very opposite of what the religious system taught. He goes and hangs around with them and has many of these outcasts actually as followers. Again, the outcasts love Jesus. The religious people, they tend to hate Jesus. In fact, near the beginning of Luke's gospel, it says the people in the synagogue were furious at Jesus so much it says they, they jumped up and they mobbed Jesus and forced him to the edge of this hill of which the town was built. They intended to push Jesus over the cliff. <laughs> the religious system wanted to kill Jesus. Again, we see this exact opposite of what people might have expected. People, again, uh, expected Jesus to support the religious system, but in fact, he completely does the opposite. And in the end, Religion actually ends up killing Jesus. Uh, it was religion that killed him. And Jesus predicted this in Matthew 16. 
Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed. But of course, we know on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Jesus says here, it's the religious teachers, it'll be the religious system that's going to treat me horribly and in the end is going to kill me. That is religion gone bad when God himself shows up and uh, the very system that's supposed to teach about him kills him. (laughs) Religion gone very bad. In Acts, we see this again, the idea of religion killing Jesus. In Acts 4, this is after Peter heals a, a blind person, a crippled person. It says that the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. So this is a religious meeting. And they brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this, done this healing? Again, this is what happens with religion. They get more concerned about rules and laws than they do actually about loving and caring for people. And here, Peter just heals this person, and they're not like, wow, this person is healed. They're like, you broke some rules. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to these religious leaders, rulers and elders of our people, he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the man you crucified. Saying this to the religious leaders, that that it was the religious system and the religious leaders that killed Jesus. And the religious system not only killed Jesus when he showed up, but the reality is uh, religion has killed millions of people throughout history and is still killing people today. I mean, if you read anything about church history, there are millions and millions of people, Christians, killing each other over doctrinal differences. In fact, you look at like the 30 years' war in the early 1600, an estimated 5 to 8 million people were killed, you know, largely over the differences of of opinion in, in, in doctrine and the way it's supposed to be played out in the political system. Religion gone bad kills. And uh, you look at religious systems today, still killing people, and if it's not killing people physically, then it's killing people under the weight of laws and burdens and weights that are robbing people of life and freedom. Uh, in many ways, religion can be looked at like this torture device that religion itself created. I don't know if I say this right, but the pien forte adjure, which is French for hard and forceful punishment, was a punishment that the church used, both in Europe and in the, like the Salem witch trials in Massachusetts, uh, used to try to get confessions out of people. And they would lay a big platform on them and, and slowly add weight until either they confessed or they died. And that could happen over hours or even, even days. And, but the reality is most people didn't confess. Because even if you pled guilty or not guilty, and you were then executed, your property would be forfeited. And so your family who was left living would have no property, and so most people just remained silent in order to protect their family. Uh, but in essence, over hours and days, these weights would be added on, and this is what religion does. It can kill, like it has using this device, but it also takes someone who is walking in freedom, and life and joy and freedom in Jesus, and slowly we'll begin to add weights, rules to follow, things you must do, things you must not do, and slowly you get so weighted down that you stop loving the people around you, even maybe stop loving God, and it becomes just a system 
that you enter into and your heart is bound rather than freedom. This is what negative religion does. And we see it, of course, doing this in Jesus' day in Matthew 23. Jesus says this, you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. <laughs> in other words, Jesus is saying, you are doing far more bad than you are doing good. In fact, you're, you're doing completely horrible things. This is the religious system, uh, that they would uh, they were actually shutting the door for people to actually find God. And this is what religion will always do. It'll shut doors and keep people like all the outcasts, like in Jesus' day and some way today, it keeps the outcasts out of the religious system. Jesus said that was not a good thing. And when they made a convert, Jesus said that they were turning that person into twice the child of hell. <laughs> they were making people worse. And it's what religion can do. It can actually make people worse because it can take free people and put bondage on them and weigh them down. And this is what the religious system did in Jesus' day. And this is why Jesus went on the full-out attack to highlight the brokenness of the religious system in Jesus' day, which highlights the religious system in our day and highlights the religiousness in our own lives. Now, what do I mean by religion? Because we need to define this a little bit because that term religion can mean a whole host of things to a lot of people. Because, I mean, one thing you've got to realize when you talk about words is that words are often defined based on people's experiences with that word. And when you say one thing, it could mean 10 other things to that person listening. And this is why sometimes it's better not to use words that are controversial, but to find different words because it can help with the discussion. I mean, even like the word Christian. When someone asks me, Jesse, are you a Christian? I know that a lot of people have lots of different ideas of what that means. And so usually I ask, well, what do you mean by that? And most of the time, whatever they say, I say, well, I'm not one of those. Because a lot of people have in the mind that Christians are just judgmental, you know, gay-hating, you know, you know, uh, whatever Macaulay's, you know, you know, they just want to force people to believe what they want to believe or something. They, and that's like, there's no mention of love or grace or mercy, what Jesus stood for. So again, we can have a word and there'll be lots of different definitions for that. And so same with religion. For some people, this word is comforting and they have good experiences maybe with, with you know, organized religion. Other people may disdain this word, and they're like, I don't want anything to do with religion, and I'm not a religious person, and I don't want anything to do with that. So when I'm using religion in this, in this word, what, 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 how am I using it? Well, I'm using it more the way the New Testament does. Uh, it's found a few times in the New Testament, and almost all of those occasions, it's used in a negative sense. Only one time it's actually used in a positive sense, and that is in James chapter 1, verse 27. We'll talk more about that at a later date in this series. Um, but here, here's how I'm using religion, that it's any system of belief, behavior, and belonging that people use to achieve rather than receive salvation. And this can be very, very subtle. Things that we think we have to do or believe or have together in order to achieve salvation rather than receive the gift that it actually is. And so, and we'll talk more about this at a later point, but uh, for some people, religion is an approved system of theology. 
So you need to believe this approved system of theology, and if you believe all of this right theology, then you can achieve salvation. And if you don't have the right system, well, then you're just, you're just not saved. It may be right behavior, that if you follow this right code of conduct, if you do these things and don't do these things, then you can achieve salvation. Then God will actually be happy with you and pleased with you, or right belonging, you got to be a part of the right church, because after all, our church is the only church, right? And our group is the only church, and if you want to be saved, you have to be a part of our group, because all, every other group has got it wrong. This is religion. It teaches that you have to do something in order to get salvation and to earn salvation, whether that's belief, behavior, or belonging, when the gospel is entirely different in Ephesians 2. It says, God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. So if you look at your system of belief and, oh, I got credit because I got the right belief system, or I belong to the right group, or, you know, I have the right behavior, and I, this is owed to me, then, then you're into religion. Because salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, not the good system of belief or your good behavior. It's not the result of being a part of the right group. Again, it's a gift so that none of us can boast. I mean, if you can find anything to boast about, you've entered into religion. And so suddenly we can enter into this, this or receive the free gift of grace, and all of a sudden, slowly, again, those weights of the religious system begin to be added, and all of a sudden we find ourselves becoming less free, and all of a sudden we look at people around us, not through the lens of love, but through the lens of religion. These people need to have the right belief. We've got to shift them, make sure they believe a hundred right things, and look at that person, their conduct is wrong, and we begin to force religion on people rather than lead them to the gift that grace in Jesus actually is. And, and we're going to talk more about this later on. But back to Jesus poking the bear. I don't know about you, if you've ever stepped on a wasp nest or bug a wasp nest and been stung multiple times. Uh, this happens to me a lot. Uh, this year, I don't think I even got stung once. It's probably the first year in a long time. But there have been times when I've been in the bush walking and stumbled across a wasp nest or doing firewood or, you know, wherever it might be. You, you open the barbecue and there's happened to be a nest in there. You know the deal. Uh, but if you see a wasp's nest, I mean, the last thing you want to do is bug that wasp's nest. Usually you kind of let it be and you tiptoe around it and you just like, you know, because if I bug it, I might get stung. The religious system of Jesus' day, and in many ways the religious system of today, is like, they're like a wasp nest. If you poke that wasp nest, you're in trouble. They're going to get you. And uh, you would think that Jesus would just kind of ignore the religious system of his day. Like, it's a wasp nest, so I'm not going to bug it. I'm not going to push any buttons. I'm not going to set it off. Because Jesus, when it comes, come, came to the political system, you know, just kind of didn't really engage with that. Uh, there are a lot of things Jesus didn't engage with, and you might think because religion was such a, a volatile thing that maybe Jesus would just leave that too and go on with his own ministry, but no. Jesus purposely steps on the wasp nest, if you will. He, he purposely pokes it and, and purposely makes the religious leaders angry to create this billboard, a record for us, again, of what happens when religion goes bad. And it can go bad, and we see even back in the Old Testament I mean, God's saying, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. 
Yet these folks thought that they were, their heart was right and they were, they were honoring God, but they had slipped slowly into religion. And, you know, God loves a lot of things, but He doesn't like religion. Isaiah 29 and with the Old Testament, also repeated in the New Testament because this is a theme that happens to people in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, to you, to me, to us, where Isaiah the prophet and repeated by Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And our heart can slowly get disconnected from God and get connected to rules, doctrines, lists, laws, regulations, and this is when we get stuck in religion. Jesus said this of, and this is fascinating, I mean, the Pharisees were the folks that everyone would say they represented God. If you ask someone in Jesus' day, you know, who, are the, who is the closest people to God, everybody would point to the Pharisees. They had so many rules and regulations that they were so careful to obey every little law to make sure they were pleasing God in every way. Everybody thought they were amazing. And yet, here is what Jesus says to the people that everybody thought was the closest to God. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are children of your father, the devil. I mean, the exact opposite, Jesus says. I mean, they thought they were for the kingdom. Jesus says, you're actually going entirely against the kingdom. And this is how religion can subtly warp our own thinking, is that we can think that we're actually for God and we can be completely working against Him. And that's what happened to the Pharisees. That's what's happened to a lot. If you read church history, that can actually slowly creep in, into our own lives. And so Jesus comes along and He walks up to this sleeping grizzly bear, which was the religious system. And again, He doesn't walk around the grizzly bear. He purposely takes a stick and, and he pokes that grizzly bear and makes that grizzly bear mad and so mad that in the end, the religious grizzly bear ends up killing Jesus in the end. But for the rest of our time, I want to look at just some stories of how Jesus purposely pokes the bear of the religious system to make a point of what happens when religion goes from, moves from love, what it should be, to a place where it's focused on rules and regulations. In John chapter 2, there's the story. It says, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. Uh, and right there, we see Jesus is at a wedding, and, uh, and there's drinking at this wedding. There's, the wedding was a party. Jesus went to a party. I write that I can make religious people upset. I mean, because a lot of religious folks, this is the subtle thing that, I mean, the scripture says, I mean, of course, that God has bring life and joy and in his presence are fullness of, of joy. And yet, the, when you enter into religion, you often begin to lose your joy. And all of a sudden, you just start thinking, you know, God is very serious. God would never go to a party. And so, no, I'm not, I'm not going to a party. I would never do that because God is serious. And that's what happened to the Pharisees. But Jesus shows up at a, at a celebration. And it says the, the wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, now that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But, but his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Uh, standing nearby, there were, were six stone water jars, and, and pay attention to this. 
six stone water jars used for ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons, and Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water, and when the uh, jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions, and when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said, Then, when everyone has had a lot to drink, now notice that, everyone had a lot to drink, and Jesus makes more wine, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed him. And so Jesus is at this wedding with his mother, and maybe that they were were helping serve, because when they run out, uh, you know, Jesus' mom says, can you do something? Jesus thinks about it. He's not sure, because he's not sure he wants to to, to let the cat out of the bag yet and do miracles, but he decides to. And part of this is that we know Jesus is in the removing shame business. And for the bridegroom to run out of wine at a wedding was, uh, I mean, that would create so much shame because you were to host the party and, and have enough wine to last the entire celebration. There would be a lot of shame that would have come on the bridegroom and Jesus is in the shame removing business. And so he decides to remedy it. Just like you and me, if we ever find ourselves in shame, know that Jesus has removed your shame. He did then, he's still doing it now. And so he's going to remove the shame because, so he needs more wine. And this again, this is the non-religious part. Again, they drank all the wine, so there are obviously people who probably drank too much there. I mean, you would have enough wine, but they drank a lot. And Jesus didn't say, well, you know, you know, I'm not sure if God is happy with people drinking so much, so I'm just going to make juice. He makes more wine, and he makes a lot of wine, like 4,000 glasses worth of wine. And to do it, he does not use all the empty vessels that they drank out of. Think about it. Jesus is going to make more wine. He could have taken all the empty vessels that they already took the wine from. They were empty. He could have found pots. He could have gone to the neighbors. But he specifically says, take the ceremonial vessels. These holy vessels used for the purification of washing hands, he specifically asks for those, not just the empties. And in doing so, he makes wine in these vessels, which people use to cleanse themselves in order to be holy in God's sight, in order to wash their pots and pans and their hands, in order to be clean before God. Jesus says, let's take that. (laughs) Let's use those. And purposely, of course, and this is pointing out the, 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 the brokenness of the religious establishment, that Jesus is taking the holiness of these vessels and bringing joy. He's taking these, these holiness of the water, and he's bringing life and laughter and wine into the situation. Again, this was a purposeful thing that Jesus did, because he could have taken the, the empty vessels, but he takes the ceremonial vessels. This is a purposeful poke at the religious bear. We see another example, and there's lots in the New Testament. This is the crippled man who is by the pool of Bethesda. He could never get in because he's crippled. And there's this belief that if you got in first, when the water bubbled, you'd be healed. But this guy was the crippled man. Jesus goes up to the person who is least likely to have hope at that pool. He goes up to him and Jesus tells him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man was healed, and he rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. Now, now, why did Jesus ask him to stand up and carry his mat and walk? 
Jesus could have just healed him and said, you're healed. And then just carry out the rest of your Sabbath by staying there and because you, you know you're not supposed to pick up your mat on the Sabbath. Jesus specifically tells him to pick up his mat. Why? Because it was breaking the rules of the religious system. Jesus didn't have to say that to him, but he does. And it says this, but the, this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. Furiated the religious system. Again, Jesus could have said, you're just healed. Don't carry your mat because it's going to make the religious system mad. Jesus specifically says, no, pick up your mat because I want to make the religious system mad to make a point. Yet the religious leaders had 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 um, reason for these rules not to carry your mat, not to carry things on the Sabbath. I mean, you go back into the Old Testament, I mean, there was actually a guy who was killed for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. I mean, I mean, surely you shouldn't carry your mat, but Jesus comes in and says, nope, I'm ending the religious system, and I'm going to infuriate the system to make sure we realize how broken it is, that it is completely moved from love to law, rules, and regulation. Jesus tells them to pick up the mat, to make these religious leaders mad. Another example, one more, and then, and then we're done, in, in John 9. This is the blind man. Uh, Jesus healed a lot of blind people. But this is a strange story, and a lot of people are perplexed by this until you understand what Jesus is doing. In John 9, it says, Jesus spit on the ground, made mud with saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam, Siloam means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seen. Strange story that Jesus takes dirt, spits in it, mixes it together, puts on the blind man's eye, and then tells him to walk all the way to the pool of Siloam to wash it off, and then he is healed. Why didn't Jesus just say, blind man, be healed? The reason is, Jesus is poking the religious bear, not once, not twice, not three, like four or five times in this one story, because here is some of the religious Sabbath teaching of the day. Number one, healing somebody with any remedy was forbidden. Anointing somebody with any kind of salve or healing anointment is specifically forbidden. Kneading dough or clay, that's work, that is forbidden. You may add only water to your breakfast porridge, you're not allowed to mix it. So what does Jesus do? Jesus takes dirt, he spits it in it, he begins to mix a compound, which was a no-no, poking the religious bear. He begins to make an anointment, which he puts on the, the eyes, which making an anointment on the Sabbath was a no-no. And, and then he, he tells them to walk all the way to the pool of Siloam. And the pool of Siloam, of course, on this very day, the priests were coming up and they would, they would scoop water out of that sacred pool and they would take it to the temple. And Jesus goes, after he's broken all these Sabbath laws, tells them to go wash this mud and spit off in this very holy pool. He is making a point. It's like Jesus is just thinking, I want to break as many Sabbath rules as I possibly can to make the religious leaders mad. Otherwise, he just would have said, be healed. Not mix, which was creating an anointment, which was doing work, which is not putting it on his eye and making him go to the pool of Siloam. I mean, Jesus, and if if you see this in the Gospels, you you will see this in a whole new light when you read through the Gospels. Jesus is constantly poking the religious bear. He's not trying to make peace with it. He's not trying to fix it. He's bringing an end to the religious system. And the reality is so very slowly, we can begin as 
the Pharisees did, the religious system can slowly begin to soak into us where we begin to look at people around us and ourselves through the eyes of rules, laws, outsider, insider. Do you have all the right beliefs? Are you following the right rules? Do you have the right behavior? Are you wearing the right clothes? Because you just get very religious and you lose love. And you forget that you are saved by grace, not about what you do or have it, have it all together, and, and then again, that goes back to the gospel. Brooksy Cavey, about the story, says, Jesus breaks the religious law not only by healing on the Sabbath, but also by making mud. And then he sends the man into the center of religious ceremony to wash off the mud in the holy water of the pool of Siloam. This is all intentional and confrontational. Jesus chose a forbidden time, a prohibited way, and a provocative place to make his point. Jesus wasn't just ignoring their religious rules. He was going after them. He wasn't just snubbing his nose at tradition. He was vandalizing the establishment. Religion kills. It robs people of life. It keeps people from God. Jesus stood up to it very strongly, and we as well are, to stand up about the abuses of religion that we see, especially in our own lives. And in the end, just a reminder, as we close, that we have been made right in God's sight by faith. And this is the word Jesus uses. I mean, uh, Jesus doesn't use the word religion ever. He uses the word faith, which is kind of the idea of trust. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done. We have peace with God not because of what we have done, <laughs> what Jesus has done. You see, Jesus is to be the hero Religion, whenever you have religion, the hero is always me. Look what I've done. I followed the rules. I've done it. You know, I got the right doctrine. I, got, I belong to the right group. I, got, I sing the right songs. You know, I have it together. I read the Bible enough, and I, and I, 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 I pray enough, and, and, and I'm the hero. That is religion. Jesus is the hero. It is because of Jesus, what Jesus has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand because of what he has done the gift that has come to you not because of what you have done you are in a place of undeserved privilege yet we always look at others and want them to do certain things in order for them to come to the place of undeserved privilege you better wear the right things and say the right things and act the right way and you know have the white whatever whatever it is to that is religion christianity at its core with the right definition it is a gift is not earned, it is received. And so, Father, we thank you that you have given us grace. And God, I, I thank you that this, this movement that we're in, that, 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 that we don't have to gather, we get to. God, I, I thank you that, that we don't have to sing songs, that it's because we get to. God, that we don't have to give because of some rule we, we get to, that is all grace. And so, Father, we thank you that you love us and that you have brought us into a place of undeserved privilege, and God, that you are so very, very good. In Jesus' name, amen.